the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or estate law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He was recognized in 2012 as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Horses raise, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this old way. Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. Uh, if, if you haven't heard the show before, listen, welcome. Welcome aboard. This show is in a couple of parts. The first part of the show, we talk about estate planning and elder law. And the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount of taxes we need to pay legally. And we got to watch out right now because there's some people in Washington who want to take your assets away, and we have to prepare for taxes. Avoiding going through court, avoiding probate. And again, we want to avoid probate now because the court system is semi-closed in, in New York State. So it's very important to stay out of court. And as far as elder law is concerned, we try to save assets from nursing home bills. The second part of the show, we talk about politics, history, religion. And today we're going to be talking a little bit about history. Not a little bit, but a lot about history. We have Christopher Kolakowski, who wrote a book, Last Stand on Patan. I think we've had Chris on the show before about the Civil War. Um, but to help us with this, we have the fall of the Philippines to the Japanese in December 1941 through May 1942. And to help us with this, we have Mel Jose, one of the attorneys in our office. Welcome, Mel. It's good to have me here again. Yes, it is. <laughs> now, where did you go to law school? So I went to San Beda Law School in Manila. Um, I practiced law there for a little over, a little less than ten years, and then until I moved to New York, and then passed the bar. And here I am at Connors and Sullivan for almost five years now. Okay, and, and but if somebody owns some real estate in the Philippines, there's some strange laws over there, correct? It's 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 yeah, it's 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 like night and day. Here we we do follow the title insurance policies. There we follow the Torian system. So it's re really basically the government issues those title. You lose them, you're in deep trouble. You know, and I don't remember when, but we used to have the Torian system in certain parts of Brooklyn. You know, where the old Dutch settlements were, like out in Flatbush and Canarsie and stuff. And what a torrent deed was, you actually had the physical deed to transfer it over. You know, today we've we've abolished that, even in the last parts of Brooklyn. I, I forget how many years ago it is now. But it used to be if you owned property, it was covered by torrent deeds. You had to have a physical deed. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people get that confused right now because they think, well, if I don't have the deed, I can't sell my property. Well, right now, they're, they're, your deed is on a computer if you live in New York City. And anybody in the world can check for good or bad. Anybody can check on the computer, see who owns your property, whose name's on your deed, 
And at the same point, if you want to sell your house, a title company that's insuring title can get on the computer. They can check what name's on your deed, and they can insure title based on the, the papers that really are on the computer. You know, everything's computerized today. So if you lose your deed, no big deal. And if, if you're coming to our office and, you know, one of our uh, receptionists says, well, if possible, bring a copy of your deed. If you don't have a copy of your deed, don't worry about it. If you bought the property in the last basically now almost 50, 60 years, over 50 years, the deed's on a computer and we check it out. If it's more than 50 years old, we still can get it. It just might take a, a little bit of time. But losing your deed is not a serious problem today. But in any event, Mel, uh, do you have a question today that, that you've heard recently and uh, want to repeat for the benefit of our audience? This is the question that came in this morning, believe it or not. Um, my, parent, uh, my parents are eight, both 85 years old, relatively healthy. They have a trust set up in 2013. They're planning to sell their property, use the money to buy a small one out of state, and then use the remainder to give us gifts to his to their grandchildren. Is this a good idea? Can they do this? Well, assuming I I would assume from the question, of course you can't assume anything, but for the purposes of answering the question, I assume it was an irrevocable trust. It is. Yeah. So if the trust is irrevocable, the five years has passed. You said 2013. Mm -hmm. So obviously that's seven or eight years, depending on the exact date. So, yeah, those assets are protected from nursing home bills. You sell your house. Your capital gains are paid if you have to pay capital gains. And one of the advantages of the trust, if your house is in a trust, irrevocable or otherwise, you're still the owner of the house for tax purposes. So you still get the exemptions like husband and wife. You get $250,000 each tax-free on the sale of your personal residence that's in a trust. And usually if one of the husband and wife passes away um, – we usually can almost always sell a house tax-free uh, because you get the stepped-up basis on the one half from the deceased spouse. In other words, let's say we have a couple. Um, they bought, they paid $50,000 for the house, whatever, 30 years ago. It's worth a million dollars. Husband dies. His half of the house, we get a stepped-up basis. In other words, we don't have to pay tax on his half, which is $500,000. The surviving spouse, the wife, if it's her personal residence and it's been there for the last few years, she doesn't have to pay tax on the first $250,000 that she nets from the sale of the house. And then if we sell within two years of the husband's death, we get another $250,000 tax-free through his death. So in that case, that's a million dollars tax-free, and we're not even factoring in how much money was put into the house, how much money was actually paid at the beginning. So, you know, that that's one of the reasons you put your house in a trust. Okay, Getting back to the question at hand, because I think I've been ducking it. Um, if it's more than five years, there's no negative tax consequences on giving assets from a trust in that case because the assets are protected from nursing home bills. We're not worried about what we call the five-year look-back period since the trust was done, you know, six, seven, seven or eight years ago. And, you know, if the gift is more than $15,000 to any one person out of the trust, and that's, you know, if there's one parent alive or two grandparents, it's grandparents, I'm sorry one grandparent alive or two grandparents alive, they can give $30,000 to, let's say, each one of their grandchildren, and they do not have to file a gift tax return. So, you know, yes, it's it's not a bad idea. Obviously, if you give the money away, it's not there for your benefit. And some people don't realize this. If you you make a gift, you've made a gift, you can't take it back. But yes, if, if you know, you sold your house for a million dollars, and you've got 10 grandchildren and you want to give each one of your grandchildren $15,000, go ahead. 
go ahead. If you want to give more than $15,000 per person, all right, you can do that. You should file a gift tax return next April, the April after you make the gift. But there's no real reason not to do it. And don't be afraid of filing gift tax returns because right now there's no gift tax at all in New York under $6 million. And as far as the federal government is concerned, it's very close to $12 million. So for the most part, gift taxes are not a problem for the middle class. And But I would follow the rules. No matter what, I would follow the rules. Um, if, if the law says you have to file a gift tax return, even if there's no gift tax due, I'd, I'd still file the return. Mel, you got another question that's been floating around? Uh, yeah. Um, this question came in like two, three days ago. Mr. Connors, I've heard that the laws about home care Medicaid have changed. What are the changes? Well, the law was supposed to change one October 1st. Um, last year, then it was put off till January 1st. Then it was put off till April 1st. Um, and then June 1st. Or, I'm sorry, July 1st. So right now, if you apply for home care Medicaid, community Medicaid, there's no look-back period for the most part. There's a one-month, 30-day look-back period in effect. So in other words, if you put all your assets in a trust, irrevocable trust, let's say in, in April, you can apply for home care Medicaid in May. If you put it in in May, you can apply in June. We're not sure what happens if you put your assets in a trust in June and then pay, then apply in July because that's when the law changes. Now, there's there's a lot of buzz going around that they're not going to change any of the laws until at least January 1st, the end of this year, beginning of next year. We don't know for sure, but we do know we're 99% sure that we can make transfers before July 1st and apply for Medicaid July 1st. So you have a loved one who's borderline. Maybe you need to get into the system. Maybe you don't, but maybe think about it in any event. Put your assets, put their assets in an irrevocable trust in the next month or two. Then we can apply for home care Medicaid in June and get a pickup date, you know, somewhere effective at least July 1st at the latest. Um, and, and why do you want to do that? Because if you wait past July 1st, we're going to have a 30-month look-back period, which means if you apply for Medicaid after July 1st, depending on how much money you've given away over the years, you may have to wait 30 months before you can get that Medicaid application picked up. And 30 months is a long time if you've got a relative who has a stroke and needs care at home. So if, if you want to get into the system, now is the time to act. It's not the time to wait to see what happens after the law changes, because when the law changes, you're not going to be in better shape. You know, so if, if you're thinking about it, if you want to give us a call and talk about it, whether it's the right app option for you, give us a call at 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. We can talk it over, but if you're, if you're in doubt, if you're borderline, now is the time to get into your get into the system. Now we're going to take a short break and we'll be back in a few minutes. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. This past October, the federal government made changes to the reverse mortgage loan program. Give me a call now so our office can show you how these changes affect how much money you receive and how the annual mortgage insurance costs have decreased. 
My job is to help you find the best solutions for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646. Or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash fmelia. Once again, call 888-943-2646 and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank, NMLS number 403503. Hi, Kevin McCullough. Every week we promise you that Mike Connors of Connors & Sullivan is going to stop by and answer one of your questions. And this week, we don't have a name from this uh, person, but they did send a letter and it said, Dear Mr. Connors, I inherited a house from my parents' irrevocable trust, and now my accountant says I owe a lot of taxes when I sell because it should have been transferred to a revocable trust, not an irrevocable trust, and I lose the tax benefits of the step-up in basis. Is that true, Mike Connors? No, the answer ordinarily is no. Assuming you did an irrevocable trust that we use in some cases for Medicaid purposes, there are enough strings attached where the grantor, the parent, let's say in this case, can change the beneficiaries, has the right to enjoy the property for his or her lifetime. That's what gives you the stepped-up basis. And a lot of accountants do that because they just see the word irrevocable. Some magazine articles say, well, if it's irrevocable, which if it's truly irrevocable, you do not get the stepped-up basis. But right now, you do get the stepped-up basis. And the reason I say right now is because Joe Biden and company are talking about taking away the stepped-up basis. What that means, if you had a house you paid $50,000 for you know, 30 years ago and now it's worth a million dollars, they want to tax you on the difference between that 50 and a million when you tie, which today is tax-free. All of these things have changed over time. So as you're evaluating all of this, friends, you need to be in contact with people that can understand properly, tell you the truth, and help guide you through that process. And that's what Connors & Sullivan does better than anybody else in the tri-state area. Just ask uh, any of their uh, clients that they've had over the years. Here's their phone number if you need to make an appointment and find out for yourself, 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. You can also drop a question to Mike Connors yourself personally. Ask Mike Connors at gmail.com and be listening as he answers them here with Kevin McCullough or on his broadcast Saturday morning at 8 o'clock on AM 570 and FM 102.3, The Mission, WMCA, and Sunday morning starting at 11 on AM 970, The Answer. Mike Connors, thanks so much. Thank you, Kevin. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500, or connorsandsullivan.com.
Thanks again to Kevin. Um, you can hear Kevin, you know, now he's got a new formatted show Monday through Friday at 7 p.m. on 970 The Answer, and he's still on 570 The Mission Monday through Friday at 3 o'clock. So always thank you to Kevin. And catch his new format out Monday through Friday on 970 The Answer at uh, 7 o'clock. Now, again, as we mentioned before, Mel is with us today, and, and Mel went to law school in the Philippines. And we're, we're talking today to Christopher Kalikowski, who has a book, Last Stand on Bataan. And the fall of Bataan, the Corregidor, was roughly April, May 1942. Mel, what, what have you learned about, you know, the fall of the Philippines? You grew up there, but do they talk about the World War II very much? They, they, they do, but there's almost always conflicting, um, I, I say, theology. Um, for the most part, we know that America saved us. And before I read uh, Christopher's book, all I know is the phrase, I shall return. Growing up, I looked up to the guy. Reading the book, Last Stand, I, I, I admired him even more. I, I, will, I want to do some more research about General MacArthur. But when I visited the island of Corregidor in Bataan, there's this one portion there who cautioned me about being careful about the positions I've taken because some faction believe that Japan actually saved Manila, which is contradicted, obviously, by history and, you know, by the fact that they lost the war. Now... You know, I think you said that some people had a theory that the only reason that the Japanese attacked the Philippines was because the American army was there. There's that, too. There's that, too. So, I mean... I, are those communists or that? <laughs> In that book, I think when people got tired, President Manuel Quezon wrote to, I think, the U.S. government saying, well, if you don't help us, we'll take the position of neutrality. Can we just take that position? And I guess whole, good, the good thing was he reconsidered that position, though. And do, does your family have any stories of, of the occupation of the Philippines by the Japanese? Uh, luckily, no. Okay. <laughs> luckily, no. A distant relative got bayoneted by the Japanese, though. Yeah. And then my uncle, you know, I, the story was that you know the, the Japanese were fond of him. But other than that, no. I heard one, one client tell us, in the in the Bayside office one time when he he when he was a relatively little boy I guess he's in his 80s now uh, he saw a Japanese uh, soldier take a baby throw it up in the air and bayonet it that's there that's there that's in history that's in the books wherever you go you'll see that and that's true though it happened now we're also talking to Chris uh, you know we'll we'll bring this on another show someday when we start talking about old movies but. The three old movies that um, we talked about off-air, uh, Bataan, which had Robert Taylor in it, and to be honest with you, I don't remember the director of that. We have Back to Bataan, which directed by Edward Dimitrik, who at the time was a communist, uh, starring John Wayne and Anthony Quinn. Anthony Quinn, who could pay any nationality on earth, <laughs> played a Filipino then. Which is actually, I think I think that's the most, the most obvious fiction in there, because I didn't know... The Supremo Andres Bonifacio had a son, and then, you know, so, and he, he was portrayed by Anthony Quinn. Yeah. <laughs> well, Anthony Quinn could play, he could play an Arab, he could play a Mexican. Well, he's half Mexican, half Irish. So he could play an Arab, play a Mexican, he played a Filipino. 
Uh, <laughs> you know, so he's very versatile. Very listen, one of the great American actors of all time. And the other movie we're talking about, which we did a show on a while back, they were expendable, which the title tells everything. You know that these guys were they were expendable. You know, and and it also talked about the evacuation of uh, General MacArthur from the Philippines in that movie. And if you haven't seen They Were Expendable, it was directed by John Ford, you know, probably the greatest director of all time. I shouldn't say probably the greatest director of all time. And, you know, it, it talks about the, the sailors and soldiers on the Philippines in the last stand and the evacuation. And you got to lay down the bunt. You got to sacrifice when the manager tells you to sacrifice. And that's the, you know, that's the story behind that. But we... We'll take a short break again, and when we come back, we're going to be talking to Christopher Kolakowski about Last Stand on Bataan. We all know someone who's been touched by cancer. It's the second leading cause of death, and it took the life of my father, John Wayne. But even in his final days, he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer. His courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big C, as my dad called it. So we did something about it and founded the John Wayne Cancer Institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research. Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. That's jwcigiving.org. Time now for Connor's Corner, where Mike takes a closer look at topics like history, politics, religion, and more. Here's Mike. Welcome to the Connor's Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. Right now, we're very pleased to have with us Christopher... Christopher Kolakowski, who a while back wrote a book about Bataan, Last Stand on Bataan. And, you know, we're getting up to the anniversary when uh, the surrender happened at Bataan. So welcome to the show, Christopher. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Okay. Now, you, you know, this was more than 75 years ago. So some young people probably have no idea what you're talking about. Didn't see some of those World War II movies in the 40s on TV. So... What's the last stand on Bataan about? It's it's the story of the defense of the Philippines, which uh, was from the, basically the beginning of the Pacific War in December 1941, same day as the bombing of Pearl Harbor, although with the international dateline, it was actually December 8th, not December 7th. And uh, basically traces uh, all the way through the surrender of the Philippines in May of 1942. Um, it's an incredible story of how Americans and Filipinos – Despite dwindling supplies, despite uh, disease, despite, you know, just about every hardship you can imagine, um, even though they're ultimately defeated, they actually along the way managed to stop the Japanese or win some, some of the early victories against the Japanese in the Pacific War and uh, really provide an inspiration for the rest of the world. Um, so even though it's a, it's a military defeat and the largest surrender in American history, it's a tremendous story of gallantry against high odds and, and resilience for sure. Now, what what happened, let's say, if, if you were in the Philippines on December 7th, what was happening right then and there? 
Well, the, the 7th, because the international date line was December 6th in, in Honolulu. So you had a nice, quiet Sunday. But on the morning of the 8th, the war started for you with a uh, ringing telephone or a radio report. Um, because when Pearl Harbor was bombed, it was the early morning hours of December 8th in Manila. And everybody expects the Japanese are going to bomb the Philippines first thing. The problem is the Japanese have fog on their air bases. So they don't actually get over until about noon and catch the Americans, catch the Filipinos off off guard, end up knocking out about half their air force on the ground. So the first day of the war in the Philippines is a lot of confusion and just a lot of, as one, as a lieutenant said, he's he's looking at the bombers coming over. He says, it looks like the war is coming. And one of the guys next to him says, coming hell, it's here. (laughs) And so that's how the war starts. Actually, what, what what was funny was that what I found funny was that um, General Wainwright, when he was looking at the bombardment of Luzon, the first order of business was to ask his stuff to, for a bottle of beer. I remember that note in there. <laughs> yeah, go. Well, Wainwright liked uh, Wainwright liked the drink, and and it was one of the ways by getting a beer and and walking, trying to be cool under fire, you know, try and keep everybody from panicking, you know. Now, where was General MacArthur when the the war started? General MacArthur was living in Manila. He, his wife, and his three-year-old son were living in the penthouse of the Manila Hotel. And when the war, he gets awakened by a uh, phone call, goes down to his headquarters, and basically he, his headquarters becomes a, think of like an anthill that's been kicked over. Um, just incredible amount of activity and, and confusion and just as he's trying to get a handle on what's happened, what the implications are for the Philippines, um, you know, and what, what, if any action he might be able to take in response. And in some ways he gets overtaken by events by the Japanese air raids. Now, what was the state of readiness? How prepared were they for this war? They were not Actually, I I write in my book, and I will continue to argue that uh, Bataan and Corregidor is a persistent warning against the dangers of military unpreparedness. About a third of the Philippine army was mobilized and trained. Another third had been called up but was halfway through its training, and another third hadn't even been called up yet. Um, There was a lot of supplies that were trying to be rushed to the Philippines um, that were sitting on the docks in San Francisco. They were using a lot of World War One era ammunition and, and weapons. Um, it was it was a case of not enough, uh, almost too little, too late in some ways. Now, where where did the Japanese invade from? The Japanese invaded. Part of their invasion force came from Formosa, what we know today as Taiwan, which was a Japanese possession at the time. Uh, That's where the bulk of their invading forces came from. Some of the others um, invaded the eastern part of the Philippines directly from the Japanese home islands. And they landed. They landed. The main forces landed the 22nd of December in the northwest of the main island of Luzon, and then on Christmas Eve, the forces from Japan itself landed southeast on the southeastern corner of Luzon. And the idea was to push and capture the Philippine capital of Manila, at which point the Japanese assumed that the war would probably end, you know, or the, the campaign would probably end at that point. Um, they didn't realize how many – their intelligence was not that good, and they didn't realize how, 
how many people MacArthur actually had in the islands. He had a defense force of about 140,000. They never uh, consistently throughout the campaign never thought he had more than about 50,000 people under command. And and so where where were the defensive positions taken up and what was happening? Well, when the Japanese land, uh, MacArthur is trying to fight them on the beaches, but very quickly he realizes because of the lack of training and the lack of equipment, um, within 24 hours that strategy is, is not going to work. And so he activates an old strategy called War Plan Orange. And what it does is it envisions falling back to Bataan Peninsula and Corregidor Island, which are in the mouth of Manila Bay. And basically, basically think of it um, like if Manila is Manhattan, then Bataan and Corregidor would be where the uh, Verrazano Narrows is. In other words, if somebody occupies Manhattan, but they don't control the Verrazano Narrows, the port is useless. Same basic idea with Manila Bay. If you control Manila, as MacArthur says, if they hold the bottle, I hold the the cork. cork. In other words, I control Bataan and Corregidor, Mm -hmm. therefore I control the port of Manila. And the whole idea of War Plan Orange was you hold out there for five or six months, and by then, the U.S. Pacific Fleet should be able to fight its way across the Pacific to relieve you. Of course, by this point, the Pacific Fleet is lying on the mud of Pearl Harbor. But, you know, MacArthur, somebody's going to come and help him. And if somebody's going to come and help him, this is the best chance to survive as long as he can. And so he orders his armies to fall back to Bataan and Corregidor, which they do over the last week of December 1941. Was Could the United States government... Could the United States do anything to help these guys before May? They did what they could, which was try and get supplies in and uh, try and get uh, – they built an air bridge to Australia, between Australia and the southern Philippines. The main problem that the United States has, and even the Allies really have, is first of all, they've they've lost control of the sea with the sinking of the – Prince of Wales and Repulse off Malaya on December 10th and the bombing of Pearl Harbor on December 7th. They've effectively lost control of the sea temporarily to the, to the Japanese. So getting shipping through is very difficult. The other problem is, is that the Japanese are not just attacking the Philippines at this point. They're attacking Hong Kong. They're attacking Malaya. They're attacking Burma. They're attacking down into the Netherlands, East Indies. They're attacking Guam. They're attacking Wake. Um, down into the South Pacific, the Solomons, Rabaul, New Guinea. So it's part of a massive Pacific blitzkrieg that the Japanese have going on. And there's just not enough to, as these Japanese tentacles are extending outward, there's just not enough allied resources at this point to try and, and knock them back to even stop the Japanese, let alone try and relieve the Philippines. And so increasingly, MacArthur and his forces, despite despite their successes um, and despite their ability to hang on, are becoming increasingly isolated as the Japanese empire expands, flows past them, and, and beyond. Let me. How is the Japanese war effort, how were they able to invade all these places at once? The uh, short answer, which may be a whole conversation <laughs> of its own, is um, planning and coordination. The Japanese had been planning their southward strikes since the previous summer, and they had marshaled um, one-fifth of the entire Japanese army 
and virtually the entire Japanese Navy were committed to this effort. The other, the other, the remainder of the Japanese Army was fighting in China. But they, you know, when you think about one fifth of an army, you know, that's that's a sizable number of people, especially when you're thinking of an army of about five million men in 1941. So, and you. Because you control the sea, because you've got a powerful navy, one of the most powerful navies in the world at the time, you can move them at will around the islands. And that's basically what the Japanese do. And they also plan it um, to strike all at the same time. You know, there's that very famous, um, you know, if you watch a movie, Tora, 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 they talk about how, you know, the Japanese are planning their their offensive based on the... Uh, sunrise at Honolulu and when they strike at Honolulu that's the signal for everybody else and they strike at Pearl Harbor that's the signal for everybody else to start their offensives about the same time and so on December 8th they're not just hitting the Philippines they're hitting several other places as well and uh, just knocks the allies off off balance and keeps them off balance basically until May June time frame of 1942 MacArthur, okay, we, we, you know, we started a few days after Christmas. What's happening next? What's MacArthur doing? MacArthur, um, when they evacuate Manila and they evacuate the Bataan and Corregidor, he and his family leave their penthouse and leave. Think, think about all the things you have in your house, um, your family heirlooms, things like that. They leave them to the Japanese and take just a couple of suitcases with them and move, to, move with their headquarters to Corregidor Islands in the mouth of Manila Bay where he is the uh, he's the senior commander of the defense um, and is both really the, the connector to the outside world um, running the battle, but also he has the president of the Philippines there and is trying to coordinate and, and keep the president of the Philippines, um, you know, from worrying too much about what's happening to his country. Um, and so it's a very interesting, uh, when you think about the pressures he's under, uh, both representing the United States politically as the senior American officer in the islands, um, militarily trying to fight the largest battle we fought since 1918, um, and then also trying to be a, a husband and father, you know, stiff upper lip for his son who turns four during during uh, the siege of Corregidor. Um, you know, it's it's a he's under a lot of pressure. He's under a lot of pressure, and it weighs on him emotionally. Um, as a matter of fact, it, unless you, if, unless you regard, if, if you don't, you, well, let's put it this way. You have to take into account the emotional impact of what MacArthur's doing. And the fact that the Philippines for him was home in December, 1941 to truly understand um, some of what he does and some of what he says during the campaign. Chris, that's what I wanted to ask. Actually, it took, it took the U.S. government two or three orders to get him out of there. Um, what was the attachment of General to the Philippines, though? It seems yeah. like he, he loved the country. Yeah, how long was he there before the war? Yeah. MacArthur, MacArthur had done several tours of the Philippines. Um, after graduating from West Point in 1903, he'd done a year out there. Um, he'd done a couple of more tours, year-long, two-year-long tours in the 1920s. And then in 1935, after uh, coming out of being chief of staff of the U.S. Army, he had been hired to be the military advisor to the Philippine Commonwealth government. We had promised, we, the United States, had promised the Philippines independence in 1946. And so the president of the Philippines, Manuel Quezon, 
who is a figure that should be remembered a lot more than he is in this country. Um, Manuel Quezon uh, hired MacArthur as the military advisor to basically create a Philippine Armed Forces. And so MacArthur has been working for six years to build the Philippine Army and to build the Philippine Armed Forces, and now he's leading them in battle. And he's leading them in battle with some success. These are people that he's selected, he's trained. Um, you know, think about if you build something essentially from scratch, you know, you take a lot of ownership in that. And he's moved out to the Philippines. As far as he was concerned, he was going to live out his days out there. Um, he's personally very friendly to, to Kazan. They call themselves muchachos, <laughs> um, brothers, um, you know, and he's got a lot of great relationships and a lot of affection for the Filipinos and the Philippine people and being ordered by the, when the president of the United States orders him to leave the Philippine islands, um, MacArthur, MacArthur actually tries to duck the order. He doesn't want to do it. He doesn't want to leave. He proposes actually resigning his commission and going to fight as a private. That's that emotional aspect I'm talking about. His staff talks him out of it and says, you know, you have a greater duty, and the best way you can help the Philippines is to go – is to get out and go organize the Allied counteroffensive. And so MacArthur – and that's the argument that causes MacArthur to accept his fate. Do you think he knew that he wouldn't return for a number of years? I do. I do. Um, and there's some evidence even before that that MacArthur – um, had resolved that he and his family were probably going to die on Corregidor. When Roosevelt's order comes through, it changes everything. But based on what he had told some war correspondents who were uh, leaving Corregidor and breaking through the Japanese blockade, um, it was clear that he, he fully expected to die on, die in the defense of the Philippines. And so when he gets that new lease on life, thanks to President Roosevelt, um, you know, he's he's coming back. This is a personal crusade and uh, both trying to save the save what he can in the Philippines, but also, if you know, um, avenging the defeat and getting back to liberate home. I always have to throw that term in there, too, becomes a big part of, of what you know, what will drive him for the rest of World War Two. All right. So MacArthur, uh, you know, is evacuated. What happens then? So MacArthur evacuates. Um, he gets to Australia and he makes a famous proclamation or famous uh, press conference where he says, you know, the president of the United States has ordered me to break through the Japanese lines and organize the American counteroffensive, a primary object of which is the relief of the Philippines. I came through. I shall return. And that promise, which the United States becoming the only colonial power to get back and liberate our colonies before the end of the war goes a long way toward explaining the fact we kept that promise goes a long way toward explaining why the United States is a trusted partner in Asia today. The people that he left behind on Bataan didn't necessarily see it that way. In fact, a joke, one of the jokes that quickly becomes among some of the units in Bataan is, I'm going to the latrine, but I shall return. Uh, there are several others. One general pointed up. He says, we've lost our luck. If MacArthur is gone, we've lost our luck. And everybody sort of knows, as, as one of them, Jonathan Wainwright, actually, who will take over command of the Philippines from MacArthur, will later say everybody at that point knew what the score was. 
The Japanese launched their last attack on Bataan on Good Friday, April 3rd. And uh, by this point, the forces are down to, because of disease and starvation, are down to probably 20% effectiveness. And after a week's worth of fighting as hard as they can, the Japanese are very close to actually putting the front line on the American hospitals. And the commander on Bataan, Edward King, makes the decision to surrender. And so on the morning of April 9th, 1942, which is the anniversary of Robert E. Lee's surrender to General Grant at Appomattox, uh, General King will surrender the this, this 76,000 Americans and Filipinos on Bataan. And that part of the campaign will be over. After a month bombardment, Corregidor will be invaded and will fall. And Corregidor's fall means the fall of the Philippines and the surrender of the last Allied forces on the islands and effectively ends the campaign. Now, I think a lot of people, younger people, what happened to the, the soldiers that were captured in the Philippines then? This is one of the great atrocities of the Pacific War. And the fact that the Japanese minimize it or don't teach it at all in their public schools is still a geopolitical issue today. Um, the Americans and Filipinos that surrender, 74,000 of them, 2,000 of them escaped to Corregidor. But uh, 74,000 start what is called the Bataan Death March, 66 miles, very little food, very little water in hot tropical sun, marching on the road out of Bataan from April 10th to April 24th, 1942. 74,000 start, 54,000 arrive at the prisoner of war camp, Camp O'Donnell at the other end. There's about 5,000 or so that are left in hospitals, clean up the battlefield, things like that. But the rest, which is at least 11,000, die on the road. And die on the road sometimes both from, from many causes, not the least of which being Japanese uh, brutality of Japanese guards as well. It's one of the great atrocities of the Pacific War. And uh, is actually, if you, you go to the Philippines today, you can drive the route of the Death March, and every kilometer is a is a marker, noting the route. It's still very much a part of the consciousness of the Philippines, and even today, one of the very few things most people know in this this country about Bataan is the Death March. That's the first question I usually get when I mentioned I was writing this book when I was first doing this project. So, but it deserves to be remembered more than it is. Were any of the officers ever punished who were in charge of the death march? Uh, yes. They hung um, They hung several guards, and they hung the Japanese army commander, uh, uh, Masaharu Hama, um, in 1946. And they hung a couple of other staff officers and things like that, not just for the death march, but also for some of the other treatment of Allied prisoners of war during the war. Now— what what are the lessons for Bataan for today? I think there are a couple lessons. The first one is um, just the perseverance. You know, it's it's a story of how people can endure. And even though at the end of the day it ended in surrender, um, what they did, what they were able to do despite the high odds. Um, you know, they win, I argue, the first land victory in February of 1942 against the Japanese that the Allies win in the Pacific War. You know, what they're able to do, what they're able to endure, um, it's, a, it's a lesson in perseverance, but it's also a lesson in what Americans and Filipinos can do when their backs are against the wall. 
So that's the first lesson. The second lesson we've already touched on earlier, which is military preparedness and the, the value of that. And as, as I tell people in briefings sometimes, what you don't spend in the peacetime dollar, you will spend in blood on the battlefield. And Bataan is definitely a great case study there. And then the third thing I'd point out is that, you know, 75 years ago, as you said, this is over three quarters of a century ago. It's still with us today. April 9th is a national holiday in the Philippines. It's still a major part of uh, Philippine national identity. And as I mentioned before, MacArthur's promise and the fact the United States got back to liberate our colonies and kept that promise, the only colonial power to do so, goes a long way toward explaining our role and why we're such a trusted partner in Asia today. So, you know, you're looking for three big lessons and three reasons why this story still matters. You know, I would offer those three to you. Very good. The name of the book, Last Stand on Bataan. The author, Christopher Kolakowski. Thank you for being on Connor's Corner. Thank you, Christopher. Hey, thanks for having me. The Guild for Exceptional Children, or GEC, has been providing excellent care to children and adults with developmental disabilities since 1958. It is our mission to help build better lives and brighter futures for the people in our care. We serve nearly 1,000 individuals each day and are proud that 90 cents of every dollar is used for actual services. Please visit www.gecbklyn.org or call 718-833-6633 to learn more. Do you have somewhere to sleep? Did you eat today? Are you making ends meet? For thousands of New Yorkers, the answer is no. For children and youth, adults, seniors, people struggling with addiction or mental illness, and for the isolated, Catholic Charities of Brooklyn and Queens is there. With 160 programs and more than 4,500 units of affordable housing, Catholic Charities is one of the largest multi-service charitable organizations in the nation. We help change lives and build communities. If you or someone you know needs assistance, call 718-722-6001 or visit CCB. Welcome back again, and, and thanks again to Christopher Kolakowski on his view of history, The Last Stand at Patan, and thank to Mel for joining us. Now, it, it's Easter weekend, Saturday and Sunday, we're playing this show, so we brought in Father Paul to give us a blessing for Easter. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So my friends, Easter is all about hope. H-O-P-E. It's all about you to understand that hope as a gift, but also as a mission to share. We are having a, such a hard time, and you may think that we are all into the darkness, but actually not. It's just a moment of darkness. And the resurrection of Christ is giving us another opportunity to be a better person. No one is asking you to be a perfect one. But he's just asking you, actually, all of us, to be a better person every day. Why? Because the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, is about hope and our faith to keep it alive. So again, every time you're going through hard time, hard moments, always remember that every single Sunday that hope is looking for you because hope doesn't like to be homeless. Because love doesn't like to be homeless. Love and hope needs you. Needs your life. Needs your space. And also, you have to remember, you don't have to be an abandoned person in your faith, hope, because we are all together 
as a Christian community to celebrate Jesus Christ's resurrection, which is all about celebrating the hope you're looking for, the hope you've lost maybe for a moment, but the hope that will keep you alive for the rest of your life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen, and Happy Easter to all of you, my friends. Do you know how many Christians live in the Middle East? Six million people. Do you know how many Christians need your help? Every single one. Do you know what we can do? With St. Francis in Beirut, we can give them hope. We can give them medicines. We can give them medical equipment. We can give them everything they're looking for because some others decided to remove Christianity from the Middle East. But if we will help them every single day, not just to feed them or clothing, it's all about giving them another day with the idea that they are recognized, that we love them, there are cousins, sisters, there are roots. So, St. Francis in Beirut, it's all about helping Christians. And you can be part of that help too. If you want to help Father Paul in his mission, send your donations to St. Francis in Beirut, 213 Stanton Street, New York, New York, 10002. I think I just found myself believing that I didn't need God. I just had everything under control, and church was actually a, a burden to me. I might have gone to church, you know, at Christmas time, gradually quit going. No, I didn't take my faith seriously, which, which probably means I, I never really got it to begin with. You can have a beautiful car, a big fancy home. If you don't have Christ in your life, there's an emptiness that's there. We are enslaved to power or to greed or to wealth or to lust, especially as a man. But there's a true freedom to not be enslaved, but to attach ourselves to God and to be free. Thank God I'm home. Now that I'm back in the Catholic Church, I'm a new person. I love it. There's peace in our home that we didn't have before. You're coming home to a Catholic family where people today just embrace you. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for whatever reason, we invite you to take another look. Visit CatholicsComeHome.org today. We're going to be hearing a lot more from Father Paul over the next few months. Uh, he, he's going to be with us in, in the States for another couple of months, and then he's going to go back to Lebanon, and hopefully we'll see him again in the fall. And we're going to try to do some kind of fundraiser for Father Paul in, in the fall, and we're going to be talking more about that later. Otto's, Otto's prepared, too. We'll all yeah. be there. His hospital, it, it we're starting from scratch. So... um. So we're, we'll all be in on it. Meanwhile, if, again, we're still doing estate planning. So if anybody <laughs> wants to talk to us about estate planning, hey, we're still open for business. Um, and, and, you know, we have offices. We have five offices throughout the city, you know, two in Queens, one in Brooklyn. Our main office, our flagship office is in Brooklyn, Midtown Manhattan, and Staten Island. And if you want to call for an appointment, just give us a call at 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. We don't charge for the initial consultation. The first consultation is free. Everything we do as far as estate planning and elder law is done on a flat fee basis. So you come in, make an appointment. We'll talk over what your goals are, what your financial assets are, what you want to accomplish through your estate plan, and then we'll give you an estimate-based if you're speaking to me, and you, believe me, you, you're more than welcome to schedule an appointment, 
with me. Just tell the receptionist you heard Mike Connors on the radio and you'd like to speak to Mike Connors. In We're person. getting busy again, so it's it's that's good news. That's good news. But give us a call. We'll talk it over. Again, we'll give you an estimate based on my experience. I've been doing this for over 40 years right now. I don't think you can come up with any scenario I haven't seen before. In the meanwhile, happy Easter, blessed Passover. We'll see you next week at the same times and stations. Happy Easter, blessed Passover, and thank you so much for joining us as always. Bye-bye. McCullough, are you or your parents' assets protected from nursing home bills? Did you know these bills can exceed $15,000 a month? People work their entire lives to live comfortably in retirement, but when people become ill and need to go to a nursing home or receive home care, the bills can drain their assets, leaving many people bankrupt. The good news is that you can prevent that from happening if you plan in advance. Connors and Sullivan's lawyers can customize a plan that specifically protects your interests, including your home. Schedule a free comprehensive telephone consultation with Mike Connors to discuss your issues and concerns from the security of your home. Call today, 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. Don't let nursing home bills take your life's savings and leave you and your loved ones bankrupt. Don't wait another minute. Mike Connors can take you through the process by telephone and start a plan designed for you today. That's 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC.